Our sermon text this morning is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4. We're picking up where we left off last week. We'll begin at verse 12 of chapter 4 and finish out the chapter. Again, Matthew chapter 4, verse 12 through the end of the chapter. This is God's Word. Listen to it. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, He saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them, Immediately they left the boat and their father and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, ep- epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we give you thanks for your word, and we ask your blessing upon it, O Lord, as it is now preached. Give us ears to hear, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. On August 7th, 1942, after eight months of Japanese attacks that began with Pearl Harbor, on December 7th, 1941, the first American troops landed on enemy soil. These troops were members of the 2nd Marine Division and they landed upon the Solomon Islands, leading the first Allied counteroffensive of World War II. The next day, members of the same Marine Division were engaged in the first bayonet charge against the enemy. And the division's artillery battery fired the first rounds from Americans and their offensive in World War II. Fittingly, in the years that followed the war in the Pacific, the 2nd Marine Division came up with the motto, Follow Me. 
Now, 1,900 years before this, follow me, were the first words that Jesus spoke to his disciples near the Sea of Galilee. Now, certainly the, the, the 2nd Marine Division did not choose the words follow me for theological reasons. But it is safe to say that these words were used in both cases in the context of battle. Following his baptism and temptation in the wilderness, Jesus went on the offensive. God's word, the sword of the Spirit, which he had used defensively against Satan's temptations, was now being employed offensively. And Jesus begins preaching a message of repentance because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is on the march. And Jesus is beginning his, his campaign into hostile territory. He is going in to enemy lands. You see, Jesus was bringing the light of the gospel into a land of great darkness. And the words, follow me, spoken to his future disciples, called them into no less danger than those allied troops entered into when they engaged in World War II. And it was the power of those simple words, those simple words, follow me, spoken by the Lord's anointed, which drew these men into the service of Jesus Christ. I would ask you as we consider this passage this morning to think on this proposition. Common words spoken by God with the witness of the Holy Spirit in our hearts call us to repentance and faith in Christ Jesus. Common words spoken by God with the witness of the Holy Spirit in our hearts call us to repentance and faith in Christ Jesus. Now, I've divided this passage up into three sections. The first section is fulfilling, verses 12 to 17, and the first half of verse 23. Calling, verses 18 to 22. And healing, verses, uh, verses 23, the second half of 23 through 25. Again, fulfilling, calling, and healing. So let's look at this section, fulfilling. As you've read through this, as we've worked through this, this, these passages, these opening passages of gospel, the Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, we've seen that Matthew quotes the Old Testament. He quotes it in various places. And each time he quotes it, he will say the words, this was done to fulfill the prophet who said this. And our passage this morning is no different. This is a significant event in Jesus' life. He's just been baptized by John the Baptist. He's just been tempted in the wilderness. And now he's entering into his public ministry. That ministry of preaching and teaching and healing. And so, Matthew quotes Scripture and shows how Jesus, in doing what he is doing, fulfills Scripture. Now, verses 12 to 13 say that when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee, going to live in Capernaum by the sea, in the territories of Zebulun and Naphtali. Well, you know this, the, the Word of God teaches that John the Baptist had been sent by God to prepare the way for Jesus Christ, for the Messiah. And the Messiah had come. And when John the Baptist had been arrested and Jesus got wind of it, he heard this, he withdrew. Matthew says he withdrew to Galilee. John's arrest was the signal to Jesus that the time of preparation was over. John's ministry had ended at this point. He would never return to preach repentance and faith. 
And so to begin His public ministry, Jesus withdrew to Galilee. Now a military commander would call this type of withdrawal a tactical withdrawal. Because Jesus was most certainly going on the offensive. He was, not, he was not retreating. He was attacking in a different direction. Or in an initial direction. And Matthew makes clear in verse 14 that Jesus' relocation to Galilee specifically fulfilled prophecy concerning the coming of the Messiah. Now the religious elite of the time, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, they would dismiss the idea that the Messiah would come from anywhere but from Bethlehem, from, from the area surrounding Jerusalem. They were looking for a cosmopolitan Messiah. They were looking for someone who would come as a political leader and bring political salvation. For someone to come from Galilee would be an offense to them. And so Matthew, as he writes his gospel, he quotes Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2 to show that this is exactly what was prophesied of the Messiah. He says, The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea... Beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Just as Matthew has done throughout his gospel in these opening chapters, he does again, he offers further proof that Jesus is the Messiah, prophesied in the Hebrew Scriptures. The Pharisees would be incorrect if they asserted that Jesus must come from Jerusalem. But Matthew also offers an important insight into Scripture. Now, this is the fourth time that Matthew has used the words fulfilled with regard to Jesus. But this is the first time that Matthew uses it in a case where Jesus Himself has made the decision to fulfill prophecy. Does that make sense? He, Jesus Himself decides that He is going to do something. He's going to take action, which is itself a fulfillment of prophecy. All the other times that it happens, it's either His parents who are taking the action. John the Baptist takes the action. Now Jesus is doing it. Now this is not the last time that Jesus will take the action. Throughout the rest of His Gospel, when Matthew speaks of fulfillment of Scripture, it is always in regards to Jesus' actions. What does this show us? What is the point of me telling you this? It shows us the binding power of God's Word. It shows us that not even the eternal Son of God Himself, the eternal Logos, can break what God's Word has said will happen. Jesus is God's Word. He's the Word. And yet He submits in obedience to God's Word and carries out all that it fulfills. He does it willfully, willingly, obediently. Jesus is covenantally bound to fulfill all of the prophecies of the Old Testament. He's bound, and yet He does it freely because of who He is, God and man in the flesh. Well, even in our passage this morning, Jesus is fulfilling other Old Testament prophecies. It seems as though He can't do anything without fulfilling a prophecy. And we'll see this as we work our way through Matthew. And though Matthew does not call attention to it here, Jesus' preaching ministry is also a fulfillment of prophecy. You see this in the Gospel of Luke. Luke, at about the same point in Jesus' ministry, right at the beginning, Jesus enters the synagogue and He unrolls the scroll, the Isaiah scroll. 
And he reads from it, and he reads these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then after Jesus sat down, He said, Today this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This Scripture has been fulfilled. What has Jesus done that day? He preached. Oftentimes when we think of the work of the Messiah, we think of it in terms of what Jesus does on the cross. If we move beyond that, if we think differently, that is significant. We cannot ignore it. We should not neglect it. But if we do venture beyond what Jesus did on the cross, we tend to focus on His miracles. But what is the first thing that Jesus does in His public ministry? What is the first thing that is recorded that Jesus does? It is that He preaches. He preaches God's Word. And in preaching as well as in healing those who are ill, Jesus is acting in obedience to Scripture. He is fulfilling what God has written about Him. Now Jesus' miraculous healings, they got all of the attention. His miracles drew the great crowds. There were so many times when He was was overwhelmed by the crowds that He would withdraw up into the hills to get away from people. He recognized that the majority of them were only interested in seeing what He could do in terms of miracles. They were only interested in healing being healed from their infirmities. But it is significant that the first and primary component of His public ministry is to preach. Jesus walked the earth. Jesus was God in the flesh. He had the ability to make spectacular displays of power. And as Satan suggested in the wilderness temptation, Jesus could summon the whole host of angelic beings. He could have proved to Israel that He was the Messiah. He could have done all of this. And yet, what did He choose to do? In His first offensive into the kingdom of darkness, Jesus preached. And He continued to preach. And the message of His preaching was the same message as John the Baptist's. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then we see in verse 23 that He went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues. And He proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. He was preaching good news. What is the gospel of the kingdom? It's the same gospel that we preach today. Salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus preached. Repent and believe. And this is what we who are called to be ministers of the gospel must preach faithfully, week in and week out. But there's a great danger for us who call ourselves Christians, those who name the name of Christ. And especially in this nation. God's Word is so commonplace that it is easy to neglect. We have Bibles everywhere. There are stacks of Bibles back on the back in the bookshelf in the back of this room. What a blessing it is to have uh, God's Word translated in our own language. 400 years ago, this was not the case. And now, almost all of us have numerous copies of the Scriptures in our homes. But it is a challenge, too. 
Because of the commonplace of the commonplaceness of the Bible, it can easily be taken for granted. We can neglect it. We can forget it. But there's something else that causes us to to not hold the Bible in as high esteem as we ought. And that is because God has used ordinary human language to reveal who He is and how He has brought salvation to the world. Now I'm guessing that many of you watched the opening ceremonies of the Winter Olympics on Friday night. And you saw the spectacle that it was. And it was an amazing display. And we don't have a high-definition TV at our home, but those of you who do, I'm sure it was spectacular. Well, God did not use high-definition televisions on our wall to proclaim the coming of His kingdom. What did He use? He didn't use visual imagery to proclaim the coming of the kingdom. What did He use? He used ordinary, human language. He spoke to His people in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. This is how He speaks. And because it is common, we may be tempted to underestimate it, to forget about it. And yet this is the common means that God uses to draw sinful men and women to Himself, even to this day. Even using ordinary words, God's Word is powerful. Well, let's look a little bit at God's calling how He calls His disciples. We see the power of God's Word in Jesus' calling of His first disciples in verses 18 to 22. Sometime after He began His preaching ministry, excuse me, Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee. And verse 18 says that He saw two brothers, Peter and Andrew. These men were fishermen. They were casting their net into the sea. And in verse 19, Jesus says, Follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. These are simple, ordinary words. They could have easily been ignored by these hardened fishermen. But how do these men respond to the call? How do they respond? Immediately, it says in verse 20, immediately they left their nets and followed Him. A similar drama unfolds when Jesus calls His next disciples. Verse 21 says that after Jesus had called Peter and Andrew... He saw two other brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were mending their nets. These were fishermen as well. He called them. And verse 22 says, Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Again, that use of the word immediately, without hesitation. They followed him. Now fishermen certainly were not a part of the upper crust of society. They were not members of the upper class. The upper class in this uh, uh, Judean world uh, was about 1% of the population. But neither were they of the peasant class. That 90% of the population was a part of the peasant class. But these fishermen were in that very small middle class. They were artisans. They had skills. They had abilities. They had a means to provide for their families. And the Sea of Galilee was such that they could provide for their families. They could carry out their trade throughout the year. In the coldest months of the year, the Sea of Galilee might not get below 50 degrees. So they could continue to fish and provide for their families. Not only this, James and John had a father. They they were part of a family business. 
Peter had a wife. He had to support and take care of. All of this is to say that these men were not leaving behind a life life of poverty to become a part of Jesus' entourage. These men had commitments. They had responsibilities to their family. They needed to provide for them. James and John's father would be left by himself. Jesus' call to to, to them meant that they had to sacrifice their own well-being in order to be a part of His disciples, in order to join the fight. And it also should be mentioned that at this point Jesus is relatively unknown. He's not not widely known. It's only in the the last few verses of chapter 4 that we see that Jesus begins to draw these crowds. These fishermen were not drawn to Jesus because of, their, because of His fame. They were not hoping that they could catch a little bit of His fame. All that is left as the reason these men followed Jesus is that they were irresistibly drawn to Him by the power of His Word. Jesus' call to them is undeniable. Jesus commanded them to follow Me, and they followed Him. They promptly obeyed. These men were living out what Jesus would later say is the cost of true disciplement. They were discipleship. They were the embodiment of what Jesus would later say in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, where he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. They embodied this. They left it all behind. Peter and Andrew, James and John. Jesus does not call them to literally hate their own families. What He is saying is that His disciples, they must be so committed to the demands of the service of the kingdom of God that it trumps everything else. So much so that their commitment to Jesus makes everything else, makes every other commitment pale in comparison. Now let me ask you this. Would any sinful human being do this willingly of their own volition? Would a sinner give up a decent means of earning a living to follow a leader who has, as he says himself, has no place to lay his head? Who does not know from one day to the next where his meals will come from? Absolutely not. No sinful human being would do this on their own. The Bible teaches enough about sinners for us to know that we are incapable of following Jesus in this way on our own strength. Sinners would have no desire to do this. Jesus is calling of His first disciples and their response illustrates what the Westminster Confession calls effectual calling. Effectual calling is defined in the Shorter Catechism as this. It's the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, He does persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the Gospel. This is what Jesus is doing here. He speaks. His words are the words of God. The Holy Spirit draws The Gospel of John says, No man comes to me except that the Father draw him. And these men, they cannot resist. They are effectually, they are effectively called to Jesus. 
every Christian, every one of you sitting here who has professed faith in Jesus Christ, whoever will profess faith in Jesus Christ, you are or will be a disciple of Jesus Christ. These fishermen, upon hearing God's word by the power of God's spirit, had to break free from the same bonds that hold you and hold me. We are called in the same way that they were called. And our response to Jesus' call must be the same. It must be promptly and sincere. Humble obedience to what the Lord Jesus Christ has called. Well, finally, let's look at uh, the second half of verse 23 through verse 25, this section which I've called healing. Having looked at the primacy of God's Word, both in the fulfillment of prophecy, but also in Jesus' calling of His disciples, we now now turn to the primacy of God's Word in Jesus' healing ministry. Verse 23 says that Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Look at how these clauses in this verse are linked. Each and every one of them. And, and, and. In focusing on Jesus' healing ministry, we have to be careful that we do not drive a wedge between His word ministry and His deed ministry. If you had to pick between preaching and miraculous healing, the miracles would certainly be the more spectacular of the two. They're visually stimulating. They cause amazement. And even today, so-called faith healers get a great amount of attention because of what they purportedly are able to do. And so it would be very easy to place a priority on the healings. And Jesus' healing of every disease and affliction is probably why, verse 25 says, that these great crowds followed Him throughout the region. And it is because signs and wonders always get more attention than Jesus' preaching of the Word. <clears throat> this is so much so the case that in Matthew verse, uh, chapter 16, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they come to Jesus and they begin to demand signs of Him, don't they? And what does Jesus do in response? He refers them to God's Word. He refuses to perform signs like a cheap magician. He says that no sign shall be given except the sign of Jonah. God's Word. There are some exceptions, but most of the time, when Jesus performs a miracle, it is done with words. It is done through His speaking. Just as God called the worlds into existence from nothing by the power of His Word, Jesus heals simply by the power of His Word. He doesn't carry a wand that He waves around to do magic. He speaks. Matthew chapter 8 has the first specific description of Jesus' miracles. And in this chapter, He heals a leper. He heals the paralyzed man, the paralyzed servant of the centurion. He calms a storm. And He heals two demon-possessed men. And He performs each one of these miracles with His voice, by the power of His speaking. And according to the Old Testament prophecy that has already been mentioned, Jesus... Preaching is just as much a sign that He is the Messiah as His miracles are. 
You see, his miracles have no meaning if they are not accompanied by his words. There were countless charlatans that ran around in this region at the same time as Jesus. Why did Jesus come to prominence and these others did not? Well, number one, they were not who they claimed to be. They did not have the power that they claimed to have. Number two, they did not have the power of preaching that Jesus had. But throughout the Gospels, Jesus is preaching and good news, preaching the good news and miracles go hand in hand. We would not understand the signs without Jesus' proclamation of the Gospel. And this is why Protestant churches have historically upheld the primacy of the ministry of God's Word. That is slipping. But historically, it is the case. This is why when the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper are observed, they are to be instituted by the words of Scripture. Without the words of institution, these do not, they are not, they fail to be sacraments. And these words are to be spoken in a language that people can understand. This is why we hold to this. Signs cannot be separated from God's Word. And that is why again and again in the Gospels you will see Jesus preaching and Jesus healing. And His miracles of healing are more often than not, the vast majority of the time, His miracles of healing are performed by Him speaking words. The very words of God. Well, as this passage has shown, God's Word is powerful. By God's Word, Jesus was bound obediently to fulfill all that Scripture had prophesied about Him. He kept the covenant, and that meant that He had to submit to His own Word. By God's Word, the disciples and everyone else who believes is irresistibly called to faith in Christ and to obedience to all that He commands. By God's Word, Jesus healed those who were afflicted with various diseases. He cast out demons. He performed amazing miracles by speaking. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and of discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is what Hebrews 4, chapter 12 has to say about God's Word. It is a weapon. And God in His grace and mercy has given it to His children, to us, to handle. And like any weapon, it must be handled with great care, respect, because it is powerful. But when it is handled properly, the Holy Spirit binds Himself to it. He works within the hearts of unbelievers and He draws sinful men and women, sinful children, those who are enemies of God, He draws them to Himself. This is the power of God's Word. Jesus is on the march and He carries the sword of the Spirit in His hand. And all that is required of us is when He says, follow me, we follow Him. We drop it all. And we walk in humble obedience to His Word. We repent of our sins, and by faith in Christ, we obediently follow our Lord and Master. Let us pray. 
The gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we pray, O Lord, that You would enable us to hear Your call. We pray, O Lord, for those who do not know the Lord Jesus, that they would hear His voice this morning. We pray for those who have walked with Jesus, that You would continue to enable us by Your Spirit to hear His Word. Lead us, O Lord, we pray. Continue to give us ears to hear all that You tell us, all that You command us in Your precious Word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.